1: morning, Greenville Oaks. I appreciate Colin Packer asking me to share a message with you this morning. Uh, and we are in chapter 5 of the story, if you've got your story book with you, or if not, in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. Actually, there are two places where the Ten Commandments are in our Old Testaments Exodus 20 is the one we're most familiar with, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, it's there as well. So you can, uh, you can kind of take your pick. Uh, We're looking at how God, as we go through the story, how God is working again and again in the lives of people and blessing them. And we call that the lower story. And then in addition to that, we see the upper story, how God is at work in the grand sweep of human history to accomplish his plan for us. Last week, we saw how He delivered His people, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with whom God had made a covenant hundreds of years before. He delivered them from bondage in Egypt through great miracles and remarkable things into freedom. And now in this chapter, we're seeing them as a freed people once more. And they are going to have to figure out how to do this thing. Because you see, they're no longer enslaved and have somebody telling them what to do all of the time. They're on their own. Uh, and they, they need some structure. They need something to help them function as a group, as a society, as a nation. Uh, we had an experience similar to that years ago as in our nation. We're, in fact, we're undergoing a couple of things right now that are very important to us as a nation. One is we're in the process of selecting a president to lead us for the next four years. And the second is we're selecting a person to serve on the Supreme Court. Two very important roles for our country. And the reason we're doing that is because that's what our Constitution dictates. It tells us when and how those things are gonna happen. You see, when our nation earned its freedom uh, a few hundred years ago, they were no longer under a, an empire a long way away, but they were, going to, they were going to be controlling their own destiny. And in the process of that, they needed some structure. They needed something to, to give order, because without structure, without laws, chaos results. Well, <clears throat> they created a constitution. I mean, ideas, laws, different things come and go. But the Constitution stands firm as the basis of our society and our government. Well, God knew his people needed the same thing. And so they did the same thing as well. Is that me? I don't know. Uh, They did the same thing as well, only God didn't have a group of men get in a room and debate what should be included and what shouldn't in the Constitution. Instead, he just gave it to Moses. And we know that as the Ten Commandments, as the foundation of God's law that he gave to us today. Well, when the nation of Israel was just beginning, they needed this and God gave it to them. The interesting thing is that foundation of the Ten Commandments, still serves as the undergirding principles of our nation today and many other nations in the world. The truth is almost all religions embrace the concepts that are found in these commandments that God gave. Years ago, a renowned scholar of world religions, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, and the last fourth of that book, roughly, was an appendix, where he demonstrates that the Ten Commandments, in principle, are found in virtually every major world religion. As different as the religions of the world are regarding who God is and who mankind is and how you're saved and so forth, it's incredible that when it comes to telling people how we should live, there is overwhelming consensus. Among all of them. And it's what we find in the great, in the Ten Commandments. And I don't think that should come as a real surprise to us because in Romans 2, Paul tells us that these things are written on our hearts. So that makes a pretty good case for what Paul is saying, right? God is giving us these not because He wants to create some hoops for us to jump through, not because He wants to give us some kind of restrictive uh, controls, but because He's giving us the way to live life that flourishes, where we can experience life in abundance as He intended us to, what we call the abundant life. So there are two places you can find the Ten Commandments in your Old Testaments. One is Exodus 20, the other is Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because there at the end of his life, Moses retells the story of God giving this law. And after he finishes telling the Ten Commandments that God gave, in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 5, he says, God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. And keep my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. After God gives these, He said, "This is why I want you to know this, folks. This is why I want you to do these things, because if you do, it's going to go well with you. And that going well doesn't mean things are going to just be smooth and it's going to be all all right. It means the kind of human flourishing that God intended for us to experience." it's really important for us to understand that God's law isn't just some set of arbitrary decrees or commands because he wants to be in control. Instead, these grow out of God's very own nature. For example, God says, I don't want you to lie. Don't bear false witness, some of your versions say. That's because God has nothing in him but truth. And to lie goes against the very nature of God. Here's the deal. If you and I have been created in the image of God, which we saw in the first chapter of the story, then it goes against our nature to lie, the nature God created us to have. And when we ignore that, it creates some major problems. Various scholars over the years have recognized that in a society, you have to have structure, you have to have truth and trust in order for the society to work. Because if we can't trust what we're being told, everything starts to fall apart. A powerful example of that was several years ago with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, when scholars uh, analyzed what was going on, when they looked at all the various factors that contributed to the collapse of that that country, that that organization, they focused on different things, but there was almost complete consensus on one factor, and that was the fact that in that country at that time, no one could trust anything that they read or that they heard. And as a result, there was absolute breakdown. You see, when God says, don't lie, He's not making some hoop for you to jump through. He's telling you, this is the way your life will work the best. When we do, when we obey that command, our life goes pretty well. When we don't, it doesn't. And the bad things that happen are not because God's punishing us, it's because it's a natural outcome. We understand that in other parts of our lives. You have a high blood pressure and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you need to change your diet. You need to stop eating this you need to start eating that. And if you walk out of there and ignore what he's saying, you don't have to have the healthy diet police come and give you a ticket. Nobody has to assess you a fine. Nobody has to throw you in jail. You're going to experience the own, your own negative consequences of your behavior because that's the way it works. We need to stop thinking of the law of God as some kind of arbitrary decree, some kind of confining, controlling thing, because that's not what it is. He's given it to us so that we can best live the abundant life. The law of God describes the life in which we'll be able to flourish. And when we disregard it, It prevents us from experiencing the life God created us to know. I wish we could go through all 10 of these commands but we don't really have time for that. What I want us to see this morning though is how all of these fit together as a whole and they're interdependent upon each other. At Greenville Oaks we often talk about being a both and church. We wanna be uh, about truth and grace. We wanna be about justice and mercy. We want to be about faith and works. We want to be about acceptance and transformation. And it's really important to see that the Ten Commandments are a both-and kind of a deal. If you have ever studied these, you probably recognized, probably maybe read somewhere, that the first four commandments are about our relationship with God, are a vertical focus. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. That's what those four are about. And then the commandments 5 through 10 have a horizontal focus. They're about our relationship with other people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, basically, is the focus of 5 through 10. Because the law isn't just about spiritual stuff. It isn't just about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with one another as well. Then the first two commands, God says, I want you to have no other gods before me. I don't want you to make any graven image. And what God is focusing on there, what he's getting at, is what is deep in our hearts, who we are in our relationship with God. You see, if anything is more important to me than more important to my hope, more important to my self-worth or my security than the love of God, that I've missed the boat. Now, honestly, it's not hard to tell ourselves and one another that God is the ultimate in our life. But when we look at our lives, when we examine our behavior, sometimes our actions don't bear that out very well. So I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself a question, or maybe here's a series of questions. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What is it that really gets you going? What is it that that turns your crank, lights your fire, gets your juices flowing? Where do you find your self-worth? What do you long to have more of? Where do you find genuine meaning and fulfillment in your life? In the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, God is talking about that inmost part of you. And then at the end, with Commandment 10, he gives us a real good idea of how we can tell what that is. The Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet. And then it goes on to list all kinds of things that you're not supposed to covet. And what that's talking about is what, it, what is it? that your heart longs after. And the way you're going to know whether you're coveting or not or whether God is really the fulfillment that you long for is a pretty simple thing when you boil it all down. It's simply this. Are you satisfied? Are you content? Commandment 10 is about contentment. And contentment doesn't just mean that you don't care about other things anymore. You might want other things. You might like to have them. But if you love God more than anything else, you'll see those things that would be nice, that you would like, that you would enjoy, you want. But if God is what really is your fulfillment, it's not going to eat away at you that you don't have them. You're not going to be... Discontent. You're not going to be out of sorts. This is saying you need to love God enough to be content with what you have without being despondent or miserable because of things you don't have. It doesn't mean those things are wrong. We all want to be loved, right? We all want relationships. Most of us want to succeed. We want to have achievements. Those aren't wrong. But when we don't experience what we want, it's not going to undo us. It's not going to destroy us or consume us when God is our ultimate treasure. An example of how you can tell that is one of these commandments. God says, keep a Sabbath. When I have God as my ultimate fulfillment, my value, my worth, my security is in Him, then I can have a Sabbath. I can keep a Sabbath because I'm not compelled to overwork to have to get some of those things I don't have. If God is my ultimate fulfillment, I'm not going to commit adultery because I don't have to find some kind of physical gratification to give me that fulfillment that my heart is longing for but instead I can use that in a way to build commitment and relationship with another person as God intended it to be. It's not that it's God and nothing else. It's that God is first. And all these other things are nice to have, but they're not necessary. That's only going to happen when we first experience that inner transformation of loving God and finding our fulfillment and value and security in Him. Often people, when they look at these Ten Commandments, they choose to focus on one dimension or the other, either the vertical or the horizontal, whichever one resonates most with them. You can find one group of people in our culture today that are all about taking care of the poor and the disadvantaged and social justice of various kinds. They're very interested in social morality. But when it comes to personal morality, well, that's my own business and everybody else just needs to stay out of it. You heard that? And then there's another group of people that are very concerned about personal morality, being devout, not lying or stealing or committing adultery or all those kinds of things. But when it comes to social morality, this horizontal dimension, taking care of other people, they just really aren't all that interested in it. But when we understand what God is calling us to do in these Ten Commandments, you realize it can't be one or the other. It has to be both. When somebody says, well, I, I really don't get too concerned about things that all these religious people say you have to do, you know, about all the doubt shalt nots and you have to do this and all. I'm not really concerned about that, but I love people, and I really want to work to help people and care for them. They think they're honoring God, but they're not. Because you can't honor someone when you're trampling on what they stand for and who they are. It it just doesn't work that way. When somebody says, well, I have high morals, I read my Bible, I go to church, I pray, I do all the things, I keep all of those laws to honor God, but at the same time, when they go to work, they're abusive to the people they work with or for. Or who work for them. Or maybe they're just basically unkind and manipulative people. They're not honoring God. John described it this way in 1 John 4, 20. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So on the one hand, we can't say, I love God and I honor him. I just don't care about People. Because if I'm not loving people, if I'm not caring for people, then I'm not honoring God. I can't keep commands one through four without keeping commands five through ten as well. And on the other hand, we can't say, well, I might not have always been completely honest about things, and I may have taken some things that really didn't belong to me, but I never committed idolatry. Because the truth is, if you're not being honest, or you're taking things that aren't yours, you are committing idolatry. Because you're not gonna lie or steal if you weren't trying to get money or approval or power or acceptance or something that is more important to you than God is. And that's what idolatry is. And God is absolutely first in your life. You're not going to do any of those things. When we really understand what God is calling us to do, we realize it, it just makes sense. Of course I should live my life like that. If I would follow these, it will make my life better. And I'll treat others better. And our society will be better. Why wouldn't people want to do that? Well, it's been called today, the culture wars, which center around, essentially, this is an oversimplification, but essentially this question, is there a set of divine moral absolutes that are absolutely true and everyone must follow? On the one hand, there are secular people who say, absolutely not. Morality is relative to the individual, and it's relative to culture, and it's relative to the time. And there is no set of divine moral absolutes. And if anybody thinks they have them, they have this unique set of truth, and that's the problem. And on the other hand, you have the religious people. And they say, well, yes, of course there's a set of divine moral absolutes. There's a divine law. Of course that's so. And the problem is you relativists who deny that. But both of these positions have some major problems of their own. On one hand, if you were to ask the secular people, well, if we really did just evolve and there is no God, then on what basis can you even say it's always right to be kind and wrong to be cruel? On what basis can you even say that human life is precious? If there are no moral absolutes, how can you be so arrogant as to impose your own moral views on somebody else? Because when you do that, you're doing what you're criticizing other people for doing. Just the fact that you think your way is better is making a moral judgment which you say no one should do. And then on the other hand, you have the religious people who do claim to have truth as a basis for their values. The problem is religious people often have a pretty dismal record of oppressing and mistreating other people and using the fact that they have this truth as justification for treating people that way, either abusing them or just disregarding them altogether. Several years ago, a university in Israel did a study of their communes. They have hundreds of communes around that nation and some are religious and some are secular. And when they did this study, they discovered that the religious ones did far better economically than the secular ones. So they tried to dig a little deeper and find out why that was so. And what they discovered is that secular people tend to be far more individualistic and selfish than religious people. Secularism tends to make people individualistic and selfish. But religion tends to make people judgmental, divisive, and self-righteous. <laughs> it's kind of like, what are you going to do? What's the answer? I mean, if you're, going to be, if you're going to be secular and it doesn't work, if you're going to be religious and it doesn't work, what do we do? Well, the answer, I think, is the gospel. Remember what Moses said God told him after God gave him the Ten Commandments? Deuteronomy five twenty nine. Oh, God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. That word fear, I don't think is a very good rendering of the Hebrew word because it's not talking about being afraid. The Hebrew term refers to being enthralled or just, just moved by the grandeur and the glory and the grace of something. It's kind of like what you might experience when you're moved by a beautiful piece of music or work of art. God is saying, oh, that my people would obey me, not because they're afraid of me because I'm God, but they would obey me because they love me. Commentators tell us that phrase is trans- that's translated, oh, that, in Hebrew, refers to an unfulfilled longing. What God is saying is how I long for my people, not to obey me because they're afraid of the consequences, but to obey me because they love me, because I am their God. You know, one phrase that's used over and over again in this passage in Deuteronomy 5 is the Lord your God. Nine times as God gives these instructions He describes himself as the Lord, your God. What's what's going on with that? You ever talk to somebody and they were talking about maybe their family, maybe their son or their daughter, and they said, oh, yeah, he's my boy. He's my boy. Or that's my girl. Or maybe they introduced their wife to you and they said, "Here's, here's my wife. Here's my love. You see, they're saying, this person belongs to me. They're very close, very personal. And God is saying, I don't want you to obey me because I'm God. I want you to obey me because I'm your God. I want there to be this intimate relationship between me and you. God didn't give us the law to just get us to submit. If he wanted to do that, all he had to do was snap his fingers and we wouldn't have any choice. He gave us the law because he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to obey him because he's our God. Centuries later, a man named Jesus will come to Jerusalem, and he'll look over the city and begin to weep. In Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, do you hear the unfulfilled longing in his voice? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. One week later, he went to the cross. He went to the cross to pay for our transgression of the law that we couldn't pay for. When he was on the cross, he was forsaken. Psychologists tell us that to be forsaken by someone you love is one of the worst things that can happen to any person when you have the death of a spouse or divorce or abandonment. But that pales in comparison to what Jesus experienced on the cross because he and the Father who had been one throughout all of eternity were separated. And he was forsaken by God because of what we had done. On the cross... He paid for your sins and mine. And he experienced the penalty for breaking the law and dying the death that we should die. And when he was hanging on that cross, he didn't say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't just live the life that we should have lived, but he died the death that we should have died. He fulfilled the law because we couldn't. And he loved the Lord God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength like no one ever has. And he loved his neighbor as himself the way no one ever has. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that not only are our sins placed on him and he died for them, but his righteousness is placed on us. And when God looks at us, God sees everything righteous that Jesus ever did. Jesus Christ was the ultimate lawkeeper so that we lawbreakers could obey the law out of love and not out fear, and that is the upper story. So secularism can make people individualistic and selfish, and religion can make people divisive and self-righteous, but the gospel humbles us out of being selfish, and it humbles us out of being judgmental and self-righteous. When we really understand the gospel, then we can turn and walk in love for everyone, loving them as Jesus loved us. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, our God, my God, thank you for loving us so very much and for wanting this loving relationship with us in return. Our Father, help every single one of us to understand that since we are accepted because of what Jesus has already done, we don't have to be afraid. We can go to the law out of delight even though we know we'll be imperfect doing it. Let us see, oh God, that we don't have to feel guilty about not keeping the law perfectly because even as we do it imperfectly, it's a way to honor the one who did this perfectly for us so that we can live the abundant life you created us to know. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Facebook. You can find and like our page at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.